0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We come to you from Rio de Janeiro, the other Olympic Rio, where we speak to favela activist Teresa Williamson. We are also going to bring you some of the sights and sounds from Rio de Janeiro from inside the Olympic Park to inside communities that are risking everything to fight displacement and eviction. That's what we're bringing you this week on The Edge of Sports. We're here talking with Teresa Williamson, the executive director of Catalytic Communities and the founder of the indispensable website Rio on Watch. Today, the Olympics are finally here I know there's been so much writing, preparation, expectation for you over the course of years. Now that it's finally present in your city, what is your reaction? Where has it met expectations? Where has it gone below expectations? Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Well, to some extent, I didn't know what to expect of these couple of Olympic weeks. I mean, I knew that the media would shift away from all of the problems to the glories of the athletes and possibly even decide that if the Olympics are pulled off well, uh, Rio essentially succeeded. Most of the athletics have gone off without a glitch. Uh,
0: The games have certainly gone off without a glitch when we speak about it from the perspective of a made-for-TV production. I mean, there's been some whining about the color of the pool and the smell of the pool, but at the same time, it's also been some of the most record-setting, scintillating swimming in Olympic history. And at the end of the day, the second part of that will always matter more than the first.
1: Exactly. And I think Rio's going to come off looking like it pulled it off. At the same time, we are still seeing quite a bit of media on some of the issues, um, some of the challenges, the problems, and communities, favelas just a few blocks away or a few miles away from the Olympics that have not seen investment, and we still hear about the forced evictions. Vila Altadamo has very much been in the news as they're trying to rebuild their community, their small community now next to the Olympic Park in a different situation that's not necessarily what they wanted.
0: This is the community of 650 families that's now down to 24 homes, a mere five minutes from Olympic Park. I know you were just there last night for a bit of a street party, resistance festival. Uh, what was the mood as you saw it in Villa Autodromo?
1: The residents are happy. You know, they fought, um, they've been fighting for years to stay. Unfortunately, out of over 600 families, only 20 stayed. So there are many people who actually wanted to stay who, either because of eminent domain or because of pressure, intimidation for some reason, left. But those who stayed were very happy And last night, and they were felt it was a success to be on the land that they had wanted to be on, even though they lost their homes. The new ones that were rebuilt were smaller than where they lived before, but they're trying to rebuild within those homes they've been given, make them unique, build a community sense again, create events like we had. Each house was already taking on a unique personality
0: that was fascinating to me because when the houses were built it was striking how similar and identical they all were like some sort of shrunken down version of u.s. suburbia track homes or something and yet people are already trying to turn them really into museums of resistance and memory
1: yeah so a couple of the houses were dedicated to the evictions museum that records the memory of communities that have been evicted in these pre-olympic years
0: why was it important to you to set up this museum for the Olympics?
1: Porque foi importante para você fazer o museu das Olimpíadas? Porque é uma forma de, na verdade é um museu das emoções. É uma forma de nós mantermos a memória da das It's an evictions museum. So it's specifically to keep alive the memory of the communities that were evicted for the Olympics. Um, so many different communities are contemplated in the project. Vila Caldermo is a focus because uh, Right here.
0: Obrigado. Yeah,
1: that's
0: it. Oh, my goodness. Now, here's a question for you. One of the things about the Vila Autodromo narrative is that it's one that can be purposed so everybody kind of looks good. Like, oh, the, the people who stayed got to stay on the land. The mayor fulfilled his promises to build the remaining holdouts, homes and whatnot. So it's a way for everybody to sort of say, we tried to make this work, even if the reality is more complicated than that. Yet, while all this is happening, um, in the shadow of the Olympics, there is this other favela, favela Horto, which is far from the Olympics, but is facing something That, to me, on paper, just seems so much more brutal than what seems like the very civilized discussion around Villa Todermo. What's happening at Favela Horto and why aren't we hearing about this?
1: Yeah, we're not hearing about Uhtu because it's not directly... Give so my
0: pronunciation, by no, the way. No, that's
1: all right. Because uh, it's not right directly related to the Olympics, right? And that's unfortunately all that the international media are covering. But Uhtu is a 200-year-old community. It's older than anything we normally think of as a favela, though it is th- seen as a favela.
0: How many people live there?
1: Um, It's about 600 families as well.
0: And the government yep. wants this favela depopulated in 90 days.
1: Yeah, so Ohtu has been there for 200 years. It's off of the botanical gardens land. For those who've been to Rio, the botanical gardens are beautiful gardens. They've been around for 150, 200 years. But when they started, they needed workers to build the gardens. And the ancestors of folks in Ohtu uh, were those contracted to build To the gardens, um, and some of them were probably slaves as well at the time. I think this is 200 years ago. Yeah,
0: that's what's so stunning because we associate the history of the favelas with the end of slavery and then the creation of the favelas as a function of the end of slavery and, um, emancipated former slaves coming into the cities and forming these communities. So was this a community of escaped slaves? Was this?
1: No, they were, they were workers who were employed to either employed or slaves, to build the botanical gardens. Oh, wow. And so they were given permission by the gardens to stay there. And that permission has been restated many times over the years. So their descendants are there now. And it makes absolutely no sense that these folks would be removed. There's some arguing they shouldn't get any compensation. Uh, People from the botanical gardens themselves are saying they're invaders. These are not invaders. No more than any of our ancestors are invaders anywhere. So these.
0: The f- irony of calling the poorest of people invaders in a country built on colonial, settler colonial grounds is just stunning to me.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, every piece of land on earth could be seen as an invasion unless your ancestors were the first human beings to occupy it. And so that's just irrelevant, really. But we still use that. And people use that as a way to marginalize certain groups. So the interests in Ohto include the Globo, which is the Brazil's monopoly on media. Uh, it's one of the largest media conglomerates in the world. And their headquarters is located right nearby. And just generally wealthy Uh, neighborhoods surrounding the botanical gardens. Um, So what's
0: the connection there? I mean, you've got Globo, which is this incredibly uh, wealthy, powerful, right-wing, leaning media consortium. Having all of this land right by this favela, are, are you saying that Globo is playing a role in trying to depopulate this favela?
1: That's the assumption that people there have. And most social movements involved is that Globo is involved. Now, ultimately, who's trying to depopulate it in practice or the botanical gardens themselves. So uh, they say they need the land to expand the gardens. Right. But there are researchers and others have, have shown that there are other lands that they can use for this purpose. And also, simply, <laughs> these community has the right to be there. And so they have to find land elsewhere. They can't take the community out. Um, so there's kind of a battle ensuing between the community and its supporters and the interests of the botanical gardens and neighboring Areas.
0: Does it shock you at all that they're pursuing this right now with the international media here in Rio and the spotlight on Rio so bright and all sorts of news reports that have been happening in the mainstream press about other favelas and Villa Todromo and all the rest of it? I mean, you were on the Today Show, for goodness sakes, talking about favelas. And so in the midst of all of this, they're going after a favela in a way that seems like harder and nastier than even other instances of displacement that we've seen. Why do you think they're doing this now?
1: You know... 80,000 people have been removed from their homes in the lead up to the Olympics. And it's the largest stretch of evictions in Rio's history, even compared to the military regime. And we thought this was going to end now with the Olympics here. I mean, the public resources aren't there Mm -hmm. for more works. There won't be public support for evictions because there's no neat quote, need for the deadline of the games kind of thing. There's no state of exception. So in theory, we should see a stop in evictions. The fact that this is happening right now really concerns all of us that care about the severe inequality in Rio and want to see that change and want to see improvements to the living conditions of people in favelas. And it implies that we might see a lot more evictions going forward. And I think we really need to get the global press that are here in Rio to pay attention to that.
0: I mentioned before about you being on the Today Show. It raises the question of how you feel the favelas are being covered by the mainstream media. I mean, it's, it was amazing for me to see you and Matt Lauer. What are the major challenges of living in a favela
1: like Santa Marta? Education, health, and sanitation are the top three demands people have. That they Teresa Williamson runs a nonprofit yeah. to help the favelas. On a rainy afternoon, she gave us a tour of Santa Marta. <gasps> oh, I bought that.
0: What was that experience like? How do you feel like they covered it? Did it exceed your expectations?
1: Oh, definitely, that exceeded my expectations. I mean, the Today show is very mainstream, and often the mainstream media don't cover favelas accurately. and they're
0: NBC and too. It's NBC.
1: Yeah, and the reach was you know is incredible. So I think it was really positive to see the Today Show approach us wanting to do this more positive, realistic portrayal of favelas in such an accessible way to so many people. So that's great. I think generally when favelas have been covered, the coverage of favelas, if you look back over the last five years, has improved dramatically. Fewer negative terms like slum are being used, more detailed descriptions that provide the nuance that these communities deserve and at the same time a lot more community perspectives. So we mm-hmm. hear communities quoted in these articles, which we didn't hear five years ago. So that's all been good, but now during the Olympics themselves we've seen, you know, we've seen the quality drop again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's normal because you get these parachute journalists who come just for a week. They have to file articles very quickly. They don't have time to do a lot of research. But even that's improved a bit in relation for example to the World Cup. We're seeing, you know, a lot of coverage, for example, of Vila Autódromo next to the Olympic Park. We've seen some coverage of City of God. Rafaela Silva's victory, I think, helped bring some light to that community.
0: Yes, Rafaela Silva, the Judica, who was the first Brazilian to win a gold medal at these games. How do you feel like the narrative has been about favelas regarding
1: her victory? Well, that's really interesting. You know, you get two main camps. You get people who say, wow, she came from the favelas. Look how amazing. Like, and think about the values in those communities that produced her. So she came out of a community-based judo program that was created partly by residents. And her father put her in that program because he was concerned and wanted her to be off the streets and develop skills and so on. And then she prospered in that program and now she, she thanks her community. The community is celebrating her victory. She's coming to represent something grand for them and for many favelas. And she'll be obviously a role model for other kids. At the same time, you get people from outside favelas who often say, oh, it has nothing to do with being from the favela. And they want to put down the favela and elevate her and say, it's about her own abilities. Um, and it has nothing to do with being. Like from
0: she you. rose in spite of City of God. exactly, As if City of God was inherently an obstacle that it had to be overcome.
1: Absolutely, exactly. So we're seeing that debate produced here, which is really interesting to observe. And it shows some of these kind of misunderstandings around favelas, these assumptions that these communities have no qualities, there's nothing good about them, and that we shouldn't make, quote, excuses and romanticize them. But the reality is they have qualities like anywhere else, and they have challenges like anywhere else. And of course, some of their challenges are more severe, but some of their qualities are also greater than in other places.
0: How do you deal with it when people say that by speaking about what's good in the favelas you romanticize them or when Because I noticed after the Today Show interview you made a push about speaking about some of the favela tours that are done by residents or whatnot. Do you ever have to deal with accusations that oh you're promoting poverty tours, romanticization of favelas and what do you say in response to that and where do you draw the line between a favela tour that actually aids in understanding of what these communities are and the ones that are much more treating it like people going on safari.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're two very distinct types of favela tours. They're the ones that produced by big operators that are from outside the community and they often sensationalize the community and also stigmatize the community when they do the tours. You might be in a Jeep, you might not get out. They might tell you certain ways you should behave, you shouldn't behave in a way implying that these are not normal people like Mm. you. Uh, And then there are the community-led tours that are often led by guides that are in some ways also activists, are community organizers in different ways, that when you visit with them, you're getting a much more holistic view of the community. So you're investing in the community, those resources are staying local, and they're about actually seeing the qualities of these communities. It also depends on who your intentions going in. If the person's going in to peep and gawk at people and and to take photos with, you know, next to piles of trash or to say they've been where some bloody battle happened between drug traffickers and the police or something like that, you know, obviously that's not productive. And then other cases where people go because they recognize that these are valuable part of the city like any other that deserves and merits visiting. So the, the intention's By the visitor and also the intentions and way they operate by the guide, that affects the outcome. And so, you know, in terms of your question about romanticizing favelas, I mean, the reality is that places, everything is complex and we we always tend to think about things in a dualistic way. It's good or bad, right? Good and evil. Uh, The reality is much deeper than that with anything I'd say, and favelas are no different. I believe very much in what's called asset-based development, which is where you focus on the assets of a place. And then you develop from those. And you need to know what those are first. You need to know what the good things are in a place, the qualities that residents uphold that they want to maintain. And then from there, you can deal with challenges. And favelas have so many assets. You know, They're huge cultural incubators. Everything you associate with local culture, Rio culture, comes out of or was maintained or strengthened in favelas. They're very entrepreneurial. Uh, the street life is very dynamic. There's a strong sense of community, people interacting. They're pedestrian-oriented. There's organic architecture. People can develop out of poverty much more easily if they can adapt their homes than if mm-hmm. they're stuck in a living condition that they can't adapt. You can start a business in your home. You can add a room for your baby, A lot of them have leisure spaces on the roof. There's a lot in in the built environment that's also of quality that we ignore. So there's lots of different elements to what makes favelas actually productive in some ways and why we have a growing middle class in them. Mm -hmm. Um, And we need to know those things so that we can then deal with the challenges of sanitation, Mm -hmm. education, health, security and safety, and some of the other issues that exist.
0: You have basically put in close to two decades on this issue um what made this the issue that you were going to focus on as uh, as your life's work life's mission life's calling it's a fascinating subject to say i'm going to marshal my resources of intelligence and all the rest of it to say favelas rio we're going to get the truth out about these and explain them in a way that they haven't been explained How, how did that spark for you
1: well, this is one component of the work. I mean, when we started in 2000, when Catalytic Communities began, uh, the focus is on identifying that there were qualities in favelas and that these were inspiring places of resistance um, that we needed to support. So our work is ultimately about supporting the organizers in the favelas. And so our early years were not necessarily about reverting the stigma or focusing on the stigma and how they were portrayed. It was more about strengthening local initiatives on the ground. But in strengthening and working with those local initiatives, by the time in 2010, the Olympics had been announced, and we realized that these communities were now in jeopardy of eviction. Mm -hmm. And these communities were now facing very counterproductive policies around being moved to public housing, around pacifying police that started torturing residents and things like that. And when we started seeing that, we identified and realized that the stigma was a part of this. The fact that there's this historic conditioning here in society, that favelas are horrible, that's internalized also by residents, that strengthens drug trafficking and violence, that produces negative policies. And it's rooted back in slavery, you know, the stigma against slaves, against blacks. So once we started identifying the role of stigma in producing so many of the negative outcomes in favelas, we said, okay, we need to tackle this. And we have this opportunity through the Olympics of a spotlight that gives us the opportunity to really get that word out Mm. that favelas are a lot more. Than violence. Um,
0: but why was this your work? I mean, did you visit uh, a favela at a young age and it clicked in some way? What, what was it about this work that for you said, this is my work?
1: Well, there was never a point where I said, oh, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Um, it was more of a constant sense of this is what I need to be doing now. This is what I need to be doing now. This is the next step. This is the next step. And it was a sense of having that very strong in me, a voice saying, okay, this is what's next. And so that's how it's always been.
0: Had you met someone from a favela or visited one where you just said, wait a minute, this is more complex than I was led to believe?
1: Well, the way, I mean, if you want to go back all the way, I was raised, you know, uh, I would come back to Brazil growing up. I was originally from here, but I grew up in D.C. And I'd come back on vacation. And I never visited favelas because my family, you know, that's just not what you did. And and there was a stigma among my Brazilian family, too. But I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I was an activist, and I was involved in environmental and social justice work in high school. And I wanted to work in the nonprofit or civil society world. I also realized later that I wanted to come back to Brazil because this is somewhere where I could really make a difference because there's so much need. And... In college, I discovered the field of city planning, and I thought it was in kind of a field where I could do a lot of good. It's a solution-oriented field. It's a creative field, and it's an interdisciplinary field, and all of that interested me. So once I put them all together, okay, Brazil and Rio in particular, which is where I wanted to come back to, uh, social justice and environmental issues, urban planning... So when I did my degree in city planning and I came back to do my Ph.D. research, favelas were the natural place I was going to do that research. So I started visiting favelas and I had this immediate inspiration from these communities. Everywhere I went, I was seeing, you know, a community called Jacarezinho where everybody talks about violence. But I went to see an arts program where an artist dedicated all his afternoons for free to teaching kids art. And then I would go over to Branca where they were talking about how they didn't have activities for kids, but they also had managed to keep drug trafficking out, but they'd love leisure activities, and they had built their own sewage system to solve the sewage problem. Um, and every favela I visited, and this is true since 2000, I've never visited a favela where I wasn't seeing residents solving, uh, solution, solving problems collectively as well as individually, which is what the houses are. You know, The homes are individual, but also collective, because people help each other build their homes. So when you add all those layers, one on top of the other, these communities have a lot of assets. And so when I saw that, I had the idea to start an organization called Catalytic Communities to bring visibility and support to these grassroots projects. And I had the support of my doctoral advisor who said I should write my dissertation about starting this organization. So it was A great and amazing opportunity for me to be able to actually dive in. And if it worked out, then I could keep going with it, which is what I've done. And if it didn't work out, it would still be a dissertation. It was a (laughs) great opportunity.
0: And then then last question. Could you ever have expected that out of doing this catalytic communities work, uh, Rio on Watch would have come out of that, which has become just this force in independent journalism here in Rio? And it's something that journalists really across the world like point to and use when trying to understand Rio? Could you ever have seen that that would grow out of this?
1: Absolutely not. I had no idea. You had no Amy, no. You had
0: no Amy Goodman aspirations? No no, no, no,
1: no. I hadn't. I had respect, but now for her. But, <laughs> no, no, no. So my, my um, our feeling really, because this was 2009, 10, when we decided, okay, we saw the Olympics were coming to Rio. I guess a bunch of things just happened, coincided. So we saw the Olympics were coming to Rio. We had this huge network by that point of 10 years of people across Favelas, uh, we were doing social media trainings in 2010. So we were getting all connected through Facebook and uh, Twitter before those really took off in Brazil with all these communities. So we started hearing from them. And also I had this urban planning background, which hadn't been that useful in the first few years of CatCom. But ultimately, when the Olympics announcement came, that was very useful because I had studied impacts of mega events in other cities. I had seen gentrification and studied it in other parts of the world. So when those phenomena started happening here, I was ready to help to kind of identify these processes and uh, help um, put labels on them and help people understand. So we, so Reon Watch took off because we started it as a blog in our 2010 social media trainings for communities, just for them to post how they felt about different things that were happening in their communities. But by 2011, we were already being contacted by media outlets internationally that wanted to use some of the material, especially video evictions that we did early on. And we realized there was this huge potential. And so we decided to invest a bit more in it. And each year since then, we've invested more. And we planned it as a project through the Olympics. So we said, OK. When we saw that it was taking off in 2011, 12, we said, OK. So through the Olympics, we're committed to this. This is going to be our focus, number Mm -hmm. one focus. Through uh, the August Games 2016, And so from then on, um, we became much more strategic with our publication, what kind of articles we publish, when, trying to time them with events to introduce new debates. Gentrification in favelas, the first time it was talked about was on Rio & Watch, for example. A comparison between Black Lives Matter and, and Rio, we started some of those processes. So there were a lot of different things that happened that we helped facilitate those debates and introduce those debates. And once they once it's out there, of course, it's a ripple effect. And mm-hmm. we, we're not responsible directly for any of that, right? It's all kind of indirect, and, and that's what we wanted. So the idea is that Rian Watch really sparks debate. So it serves to document what's going on, first and foremost. So even, there's some articles that we didn't expect many people to click on, but we wanted to document that that event happened where that community existed, for example. And then beyond that, there's the advocacy function. We can advocate for policies. Um, we can put out community opinions, very strong opinions from communities. We have researchers that do research in favelas that publish popular versions of their research on Rio and watch, uh, community journalists who propose and write stories about topics they find important in their communities. And then we've we have always had a really great group of international observers or interns who come up from Mm -hmm. abroad and spend time with us writing about different areas of interest to them, but always with a community perspective as the focus.
0: What next? You said you've had this long-standing perspective on the Olympics. What happens to Rio on Watch? What happens to CATCOM now that the Olympics are done?
1: Well, the plan was that Rio Watch would be archived after the Olympics. It was a project through the Games. But because it's taken on such an important role, and also because the international media is going to leave a lot of it, and we will need the English language kind of content being produced regularly, uh, we are going to maintain it. But it's going to shift. Rio Watch is going to become, obviously, the mega events aren't going to be on the horizon anymore, so it won't be focused on the Olympics, per se, although we will go back and look at the impacts as we go forward. But um, Watch is going to go greener, more positive, and more focused on the debate around the solutions that favelas need and want. Mm -hmm. Um, So what kinds of grassroots projects work? Uh, What kinds of technology, low-cost technology solutions can communities incorporate? What kinds of policies do people from the favelas themselves want? How would they change things? Uh, What are their views on the changes? We'll have a lot more community reporting as well. And also, we want to produce a Real Watch replication manual. So next on the horizon, hopefully, is to secure some support to basically do the research and background and create a manual that anybody in the world uh, who wants to set up a similar kind of a news site at low cost but high impact, you know, it can be around a campaign, it can be around a policy, you can say, oh, we're going to create this uh, news site until we enact X law. And you can just rally through this news source around putting together the documentation information perspectives you need to get the popular support for whatever that law is. Mm. Or you can have it in the lead up to a mega event, or you can have it um, around an issue. So the idea is that Reon Watch, we've created a system for, you know, we've had over 500 writers to Reon Watch over these five years. More than 90% of the reporting on the site is solidarity reporting. It's you know people contributing for free. And uh, we have a whole system in place. These articles are all translated, and it's all done through volunteers. And also the philosophy and the strategy behind it, we'd like to make that all accessible so people can replicate it.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks,
1: Dave. It's been a pleasure.
0: was Teresa Williamson. You can follow her work and the work of her organization at Rio on Watch or at CATCOM, which stands for Catalytic Communities. Either of those websites will tell you everything you want to know about the remarkable work that they do. And now I've got some choice words for a pretty unique Olympic experience that I had in Rio And that was the experience of speaking to three teachers who had been part of a five-month strike and school occupation that involved 81 schools in the state of Rio. So I've got some choice words about that. So in the shadows of both the 2016 Rio Olympics and the political crisis that's rocked the world in Brazil, a struggle took place with more resonance than either of these events if people only knew that it happened. Just beyond the city's northern borders, a five-month strike by public school teachers ended only just last month in time for the games to begin. Of 166,000 teachers, 70% went out, confronting violent police repression in an effort to win a raise and confront unendurable working conditions that produce student-teacher ratios of 50 to 1. What made this strike so remarkable was that it did not end on a picket line. Dozens of schools were occupied by teachers and students, and for months. And in these occupations, they staged their own classes while union leaders negotiated their futures, and the police knocked down their doors. Like I said, I spoke to three of these teachers in Rio. Uh, Their names are Madaria, Rafael, and Eduardo, and two of them were part of the occupations and all were involved with the union. Their story is not only a labor battle of note, it demonstrates the ways that funding the Olympics starved parts of Rio and provoked unforeseen consequences. These educators are clear that what made these strikes special were the occupations. Rafael said to me, In total, there were 81 schools that were occupied. We held debates about current issues, about racism, politics. We opened the libraries, held cultural events, and the schools became what they're supposed to be, cultural centers for the community. And as these occupations continued in these schools that are so starved of funds, the priorities of the multi-billion dollar Olympic Games were never far from their minds. This is what they said. They said, "Both within the occupied schools and within the teacher strike, we were very cognizant of everything that was happening with the Olympics." It was really disturbing. We don't have money for sports. We don't even have money for hot food. Instead, all we see is a state that is investing in a big Party that'll just be gone in a month. Now, the police violence against teachers was very intense. Eduardo told stories of being beaten, and another teacher who was supposed to join us, named Luciano, was still bedridden from an encounter that almost killed him. So he was supposed to meet with us, but he couldn't leave his bed because it made him too dizzy because of the concussions he received fighting the police. But as Maria said, she said the fact that they were almost killed counts them as lucky. She said, look, we face repression, beatings, and gas, but you have the police killing a lot of people in the favelas, especially young black men, and those young black men make up our students. The Rio State Police alone have killed more people than the entire American police force. We teachers are used to the violence, but that's not as hard as what poor people face on a daily basis, end quote. Now, the end of the strike was bittersweet. The teachers did not win their wage increase, but still pushed the struggle forward in other ways. As Raphael said, in this climate for the teachers to be on strike, it was a very historic moment, even if it was difficult at the end. The main reason that we entered the strike was for raises, and that was something that we weren't able to win. The second great loss was that we didn't get any more time in preparing for classes. Think about that last statement that Raphael just said. They fought the police in the streets. They were hospitalized to fight for an extra planning period. But they also won two things that teachers in the United States should take note of. They were able to win a reduction in the work week for non-teaching staff from 40 to 30 hours per week, which built solidarity. We're talking like janitorial staff had to work less hours, but for the same amount of pay. And that also freed up more opportunity to get other people to be hired on. But the other thing they won is that the teachers in the state of Rio can now elect their own principals. You heard me correctly. Students, parents, and teachers can elect the person in charge of their schools. Now, as for the Olympics taking place while we were speaking, Maria said, Brazilians are of two minds. There's the disapproval of the event, but not of the sports. People are supporting the sports. But when you're living here in Rio where things have gotten more expensive, it's very difficult to be living here at this moment and coupled with all the problems that the city is facing and have these Olympics. They also recognize the inspiration of people like Rio's own Judica gold medalist, Rafaela Silva. I asked these brave teachers if they had any messages for teachers in the United States facing very similar issues to the ones that they have faced. And this is what they said. First, Eduardo said, My only message is that struggle changes lives. The only way for them to overcome the issues that they face over there, which are similar in some ways to ours, is to organize and to get involved and participate in the struggles of education for the whole society. Raphael, this is what he said, These strikes, even though they're difficult, are part of a process. If we don't fight for our rights and if we don't organize, we're not going to get any of the victories. So my message for them is to fight for what they want. When any union in the U.S. strikes, and it doesn't have to be a teacher's union, we will send a letter of support. Just ask. Eduardo then jumps back in and says, What happens in America affects the whole world. Rafael then says, The systems of education permitted in America, like standardized testing, are being copied by Brazilians, so when you guys are fighting against those policies over there, you are helping us too. You might as well say, teachers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but standardized testing. But let the last word go to Maria, because I think she said it well. She said, I would only express my deep solidarity because your struggles is our struggle, and our struggle. Is also yours. All, 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 all the glitter is not gold. Gold is not reality. Real is what you me. And now the Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the most unlikely Olympian of them all, Anthony Irvin. For those of you who are not familiar with Anthony Irvin's story, he just became the oldest swimming gold medalist. 35 years old, he wins the 50-meter sprint by one one-hundredth of a second. The start essential. Matadu in lane four, Irvin above him in lane three. Adrian two lanes below Matadu in lane six. That's the best start I've ever seen Tony do in their lane number three. He up and he swims faster than anybody else. Can he run? Manadu down. Manadu in lane four. There's Anthony Irving searching in lane three. Is he gonna do it again? You bet he is. One 100 different second. Now, what makes Anthony special, though, is not the gold medal swinging from his neck. What makes Anthony special is the fact that he is a political deep dude who is not afraid to stand up on questions of principle. I had the privilege of helping Anthony put out his book, which is called Chasing Water, Elegy of an Olympian, and I cannot recommend it enough. The guy has had the most wild story to get to this Olympic moment. It's a story that makes him all too human. And at the same time, it makes him absolutely heroic. The only thing I'll say about Anthony, I don't want to even give too much away because I think we're going to have him on the show soon. But let's just say right now, he's an Olympian with a gold medal who's also writing his master's thesis in education. And his master's thesis is on Muhammad Ali, the activist athlete. So big ups to Anthony Irvin. Great job on democracy now. Great job for being the kind of gold medalist who would want to be on democracy now. And we can't wait to have you on the show. But I think the last word on the show this week is going to go to a nine-year-old girl named Kay Alvito. Kay lives in the Santa Teresa neighborhood in Rio, and she has seen these Olympics build up from the bottom over the course of the nine years of her life. And I asked her opinion about what she believes the Olympics bring. Take it away, Kay. I think it brings the removal of communities and people and families and it brings debt, it brings money for the rich people, it brings less trees because they probably cut down a lot of trees. It it just means so many things and most of them aren't good. Could not have said it better Myself, You hear someone speak like that and it actually gives you a sense of hope. Hey, for everybody out there for listening to Edge of Sports, thank you so much. Thank you to my producer, Dan Bloom, who put all this together uh, from the music, the interviews. He does a masterful job. want to contact me, Dave Zirin, you always can over Twitter at Edge of Sports. You can email me at edgeofsports at slate.com. And we have a new feature here at Edge of Sports. It's the Edge of Sports hotline. We want to hear from you, our listeners. We've been getting a lot of phone calls. We're going to play the best takes on every show. We're going to ask a question. We're asking for your response. The phone number is 401-426-3343 or 401-426-3343. Edge and the question this week is this because I get a lot of people out there calling in saying that they like the Olympics.
1: Hey Dave, Felix from Santa Fe here. I am right there with you. I am a lifelong Olympic watcher. Um, I remember the 1980 boycott and really felt for the athletes who suffered. Did it do
0: anything to move the political situation at all? Don't know. And then the Russians boycotted Los Angeles and no one cared. I do my best to watch it all with two screens going. I don't get handball, but it's a simple enough concept that's repeated. Get the ball in the net. And then there's ping pong and
1: badminton. And it's not how the neighbors play on Sunday. What a wonderful smorgasbord sports! I admire and appreciate all these athletes competing and following their hearts. Hey, Dave, love listening to you. Um, Peace out. Keep
0: watching the Olympics and uh, keep doing what you're doing. question this week is this. If you knew the Olympics were coming into your town, what would you do? Would you volunteer for the local Olympic committee? Would you buy tons of tickets and watch? Or would you become a part of a protest movement to try to keep the Olympics the hell out of your town? Based on what you know about the Olympics, what would you do? Tell us. 401 426 3343 or 401-426-EDGE. That's all for this week's show. Peace and love to everybody in Rio. We are out of here. Peace.